It's not calling you Josh Frydenberg, it's calling you Dosh Frydenberg. Under the coalition, taxes for hard-working Australians will always be lower. You know, I, I don't hold a hose, mate, and I, I don't sit yeah. in control room. They're answers that only can come from Victoria, I'm afraid, because that's not my job. But I ain't spending any time, though, because in the meantime, every three months, a person is torn to pieces by a crocodile in North Queensland. Well, g'day. Listeners, and welcome to the Two Jacks Combo, where we start in Australia and move around the world thereafter and have a bit of a poke around in sports at the end of the program, just like all fine news programs do. And joining me today, as per usual, all the way in Hong Kong, is Hong Kong Jack. How are you, mate? I'm excellent, mate. All Uh, good here. Weather's nice. No problems today. No sweeping pandemics, uh, economic disasters, Nothing like that at all? No, if we could just persuade the government to get rid of the mask mandate, we'd all be happier, I think. But, you know, apart from well, that, there, it's has, okay. there has been some, there has been some um, clinical studies, proper clinical analysis done of the benefit or otherwise of masks. We mentioned it briefly two weeks ago, Jack, and it would seem to be not peculiarly <laughs> surprising this is that, that viruses can find their way through a fabric mask. This is the Cochrane study you're talking about. Yeah, the, the Cochrane, Cochrane study. Yeah, I mean, it, was, yeah. it, 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 it basically, the, the, the most important thing, and the Cochrane study is being done uh, over, over a number of years and it's particularly useful now, but the most important thing that arose from the Cochrane study is hand hygiene and how important that is in terms of preventing viral transmission. Masks, not it, so much. It, it is notable here that the compliance with the mask wearing is diminishing. People are a bit, a bit fed up with it. It's, it get a bit warm. I mean, it's winter, but it's still, still be getting a bit warm. Um, well, for wearing yeah, a mask. they're going to have to do something by summer. I think people will be getting bolshy about it by summertime. All right. Now, meanwhile, in Australia, Labor and the Greens uh, are having another battle over climate. Um, the Greens are absolutists. Uh, the La- Labor Party are negotiators. And the Greens say they support Labor's, Labor's climate policies in all respects except one, Jack. Uh, what do they want? No more uh, fossil fuel mines. No more, no more new coal. No, no more new coal. Yeah, no more no, new fossil fuel exploration. No more new mines operating. That's that's their their bugbear. So, well, given given we're going to need fossil fuels for the next thirty or forty years, it seems a bit short sighted. Well, I wouldn't say that long, but it's the, 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 we're definitely going to be needing gas for a long period of time. But it, but but but. The, the, the politics fascinates me, Jack, because the Greens historically have said, if we don't get our way, we uh, we, we, we 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 burn down the we burn down the farmhouse. Yeah, all uh, the toy, all the toys come out of the cup. Yeah, that's right. So you know, this legislation will require support of the Greens and two cross benches that may or may not be Lydia Thorpe. We'll get onto that in a moment. A, a, a Pocock, of course, and there, there's, of course, the Jackie Lambie network, a network of two, and that's about it. So without the green support, it would be unlikely to get that legislation through. Mm-hmm. I did see a, a former ALP MP, Jenny George, and former former boss of the ACTU many years ago. Uh, she ended the phrase saying that we're, we're closing our coal generating electricity plants without a backup plan. Is that right, though, Jack? I think it is. 
Well, if we're going essentially to renewables, battery, etc., I mean, more emphasis on that, less on coal, more on gas, I don't know that that's actually the plan. I mean, really, this is market-driven, isn't it? I mean, the big electricity generators, yes, they've been messed around by governments for the best part of 15 years, so it's been very, very difficult for them to make investment of investment choices, but they are looking more and more at, you know, not looking at new coal because they believe ultimately that they've done the they've done the analysis on this and and they believe ultimately it's not going to be a cheap means of them making a profit. It's not going to be a, a means of them making a profit going forward. It, you know, there's more to it. I mean, trust me, capitalists, including electricity generators, generators, will say if we can make a if we can make this work, make this as profitable as possible. We don't care if we've got to, you know, burn <laughs> burn human beings. You know, the, the the morality goes out the window. But increasingly, it looks like the market is just not interested in coal coal fired oh, oh. generation. I would have said your analysis of how um, boards and capitalists work would have been right 20 years ago, but it's not right now. Well, they can expect, can't they? They can expect to get a bit of the backlash. And even from some of the large institutional investors, some of the big super companies, they can expect to get a bit of a backlash. But it has to be more than just a, well, uh, we may not get the funding that we need. There, there, there really is obviously a cost-benefit analysis that says, well, this, this stuff's not going to be profitable or it's not going to be as profitable as renewables, as gas, as uh, perhaps even nuclear, Jack. It's not even about profit in, in, the, in the boardrooms and executive levels of banks and, and large institutions anymore. This is about um, an almost religious belief in renewables. Well, that might be. That might be the case. But, but if you, And they if might you, get it wrong. Yeah, well, you, 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 they might get it wrong, but and they haven't been aided by government who basically just not provided a national energy plan for a very, very long time, or when they've had one, it's just been so absurd that it couldn't be followed. We'll see how we go. I mean, I, I just think that, yes, there is pressure around the community and there's pressure on the Labor Party, by the way, to, um, to uh, basically prohibit... Uh, new coal mines. I see Clive Palmer got shut down in Queensland, and one that was very, very close to the, uh, uh, very, very close to the Barrier Reef, Jack. Uh, and that was an, a decision made by the Environment Minister T- Tanya Plibersek. Mm. Um, anyway, it's going to be interesting. White knuckle politics. You know, do, who caves first, the Labor or the Greens? Well, you know, you, you know what you're dealing with with the Greens, and that, and that is if 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 they don't get their way. As you say, the toy, the toys come out of the cot. We're moving on to the voice now. It's going to be uh, something that we'll be discussing pretty much every episode of the two jacks. The expert group advising uh, Anthony Albanese on how to ensure an Indigenous voice to Parliament has split. I think that's a, I think that's a words used by the Australian, but I'm not sure that we'd call it a split. But they are in two minds about whether the body should make representations to the executive, e.g. Cabinet amid concerns the current wording will sink the proposal. So that they, we, we don't have a, we don't have the current wording, do we? Not yet. Not really. No, no. And we don't know which chapter of the constitution it's going in, and that's sort of important. Chapter one's about the parliament. Um, chapter two's about the executive, and there's a chapter seven which is sort of miscellaneous. So they look to be the only places that I can see it going. 
Right, and and so we've, we're getting down to this wording thing. I mean, I think we were told two weeks ago that, that by the uh, by the executive by the expert group advising the parliament and uh, and the prime minister that they were very close to a wording, but they seem to have basically hit a bit of a hurdle. Steve, Sydney barrister Steve McClure wrote in the Australian last year that a constitutionally guaranteed power to make representations to the executive is very likely, it's not on the advisory body, I must say, but he said that uh, a constitutionally guaranteed power to make representations to the executive is very likely to be matched by a reciprocal obligation on the executive to consider them. Well, you can, that's not very likely, that's an absolute certainty. Well, I would think so, but but what are the constitutional risks here? But anyway, we'll, we'll go on. Anne Toomey, who's well-known constitutional law expert in Australia, hosed down the legal concerns as nonsense. All it, that is the voice, can do is make representations. It's up to Parliament to decide how this body is compromised and what its powers and functions are. That's pretty clear, isn't it, Jack? Yeah, I think she's wrong. As <laughs> simple as that. Well, in what respect? Well, I think the courts will um, uh, force every level of the executive to demonstrably consider any representation of the um, of the voice. But that's kind of what the voice is. I mean, it, it, the voice is then, a, then the problem an advisory arises. body in itself. To then the problem. Then the problem all arises. Levels of parliament. The problem arises: what's proper consideration? And um, I think what's likely to happen, if, if it's left at the way it seems to be at the moment, is that the courts will say that whenever the voice is not agreed with, it wasn't given proper consideration. I think that's, that's that's what courts do. I think that's the, but I think that's a, I, I think that's you know it will depend very much on how Parliament legislates. It then gets it right. It needs to get this absolutely right. We are still talking about an advisory body making representations to the Parliament to the executive, and 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 really it will come down to one the acceptance of this by the people, and then second how the how the Parliament legislates it. I don't see a lot of problem here. I think we're scrambling. Not this, not not you. I'm talking about. But here we go. Constitutional conservative lawyer Greg Craven, who is a member of the panel of legal experts advising the working group, said there were growing concerns that allowing the voices remit to extend to the executive would provide an avenue for government decisions to be challenged in the High Court if they were made without consulting the voice. There's now, and this is a quote from from Greg, there's now a coalescence of a view that you would be able to go to the High Court and stop the decision from being implemented until the Minister had considered representations from the voice. The political problem going on, quoting Craven again, will be that no Conservative Party or person is ever going to agree to that because Conservatives have a basic view of keeping unelected judges out of politics and policy. Toomey goes on to say the interpretation that people are concerned about seems an unlikely one for the court to take, but it can't be completely ruled out. We're dealing in the nebula, aren't we, Jack? We this is this is part of the problem with the boys at the moment when we say there's not enough information out there. But they're basically are still working through the processes and the language. I wouldn't like us to see like us. To end up seeing a situation where you did have unelected judges interfering in policy um, and politics, that would be well, a disaster. Yeah, I, I just think we're at a very, very early and, stage. And, and if they're allowed to do that, they will. 
Well, Toomey did offer one solution, and that is to, to, to protect against legal challenge. Apart from removing the words executive government from the amendment, it would involve the government setting up processes to ensure that the voices' representations were routinely taken into account. And she says, just have some kind of practical system under which decision makers would routinely check to see whether they were, whether there were any relevant representations to the decision making. Have the documentation that shows they took that into consideration, and then you wouldn't have the problem of delay. I can't see this. This is a make it a make it a box ticking exercise, you mean? Well, essentially, that's what it is, isn't it? I mean, you know, it, it can be more extensive than that. But if we are looking at perhaps, let's say, federal drug policy, Jack, and the the uh, uh, and 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 the extra parliamentary body, Indigenous parliamentary body, the voice came back with representations to the parliament and the executive. Well, would, they would be listened to, wouldn't they? I mean, um, they, they yeah, may they, not be followed. They may not be adhered to, well, but that's, they'll be that's, followed. That's precisely the point where it gets difficult. Are they listened to? That's fine. But my, in my view, the courts will just start deciding that unless they're agreed with, they haven't been properly listened to. Well, how would that distinguish from any other group that perhaps lobbies government on um, on legislation. Uh, well, the, the, the difference is that this, this would be a constitutionally sanctioned group rather than just a lobby group that has to be listened to. All right. Okay. So, so, more, so work, uh, more, more legal work needs to be done. Really, yeah. it's going to be the, the critical... The critical part of this process, beyond the referendum, which is difficult enough, is going to be the nature of the legislation that passes through the parliament thereafter. Yeah, but and to get get the ref- referendum through, there's a lot more work that needs to be done. That's that's been my position all the way through this. I, I think it's a, the, the voice is a good idea, but the practicalities of it are, are nowhere near ready enough to put to the people in a vote, in my view. All right. Meanwhile, opposition leader Peter Dutton on Friday, that's uh, Friday the 17th of February, repeated his view that the referendum was on track to fail due to a lack of detail around how the voice will operate. I think the voice is not going to get up and I don't think it's going to be successful, Dutton said. Well, Jack, isn't that his job now? I mean, he's, he's got a number of real challenges this year, Peter Dutton, if he's going to survive in his job. And I think that he is more or less basically signalling what he wants to do, that he basically wants to be the party of opposition towards, you know, to, 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 towards the no vote without actually, uh, without actually coming out and saying it so far. And, and really, I mean, how we know that there's more to be done here. Clearly there is. And I know that uh, Peter Dutton actually had a meeting with the, with the advisory body and he and uh, and he and his shadow minister left that sort of uh, expressing concern that there wasn't enough information and so forth, which, which may well be right. But I just think he is setting himself up to play politics here. Well, uh, he, he may well be. I, I don't know what his motives are. Uh, it's not just a, just a question of detail. I don't think they have the design worked out, the basic framework of the thing worked out properly yet. That's where, that's where the real work needs to happen. One thing I noticed the other day, I, I, I made an error. I watched the drum. Haven't watched it since you used to be on it, really. 
Um, See, and, I stopped. I stopped going on the drum, Jack, for precisely those reasons. And um, and I thought, gee, if the if the media takes this view, and this was the view of the program, that every, everybody who is not going to vote yes for the voice is a bad person, I just think that's an incredibly risky approach for the government, and the government are doing this to some extent too, for the government and the media to take, that can that risks, in my view, driving a lot of people into the no camp. People don't like being told, Australians don't like being told what to do. Yeah. Oh, look, I, I, there's going to be some pretty ugly language going back and forth, Jack. I mean, we just know that that's going to happen. And there already has been, basically. I mean, we can, we can talk about... You know, those on the other side, the, 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 the no campaign, Jacinta Price basically labelled failures, fail, you know, that the, the voice couldn't fix things like what's going on in Alice Springs. But certainly, I would I think she's probably right about that. I don't have oh, well, any faith. We could argue. We could argue. I don't have it. any faith that the voice is going to fix that. Well, what it will, it, we're not talking about fixing it, Jack. What it will do is allow Indigenous people to make representations on policy. Mm. And that and that's and that that is really what we what we call self determination. That is self determination. It's a, a, a basically looking at a problem and trying to fix it, rather than being told by white white people what they should be doing. It, that that may be a better approach, but I don't think it's going to have any practical effect. No, oh, it will have. Pra- you can't you can't say it won't have any. I mean, you might you might we might find that uh, some of the remote uh, indigenous communities, you know, well, we know that they're going to continue to have their yes. their problems, but really giving people the uh, <coughs> give, giving indigenous people the the ability to speak up about. How they how they can resolve some of these some of these significant issues some of these significant uh, uh, differences between uh, in, Indigenous Australians starting out in life and and uh, and, and all other Australians. Well, thinking, um, thinking thinking an alteration to the constitution is going to fix the problems in remote Indigenous communities would be a triumph of hope over experience. Well, as I say, I, I don't think we can expect too much. But what we will what we will have established, Jack, constitutionally through the referendum and through the legislation, is is create the capacity for Indigenous Australians to essentially say, "We know the problem, and and we believe this is the way to fix it." I think there are two separate issues here. One is the problem in remote Indigenous communities in particular, and the other thing is some sort of constitutional recognition. To conflate those two, I think, is a mistake because history shows us that these symbolic gestures don't have any real effect on the ground in the practical problems. Well, I'm not sure about any. I think that's a bold and sweeping statement. Of course it is. And if we look like if we look like the Canadian, if we look at the the uh, indigenous situation in Canada, for example, we've seen significant improvements since treaties were established there, either provincial or or, or, or national. We've seen improvements in terms of uh, in terms of extension of uh, extension of life, of life expectancy, reduced numbers in in, in incarceration. These sorts of things have actually flowed from from uh, government treaties with uh, Native Americans in Canada. 
Mm, I'll have to have another, look, uh, another look at the Canadian situation. Last time I, I looked, so, it wait, wasn't wait, much wait, 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 look, you know, we are dealing with the esoteric with the voice here, Jack. So, so let's let's have a look at the Canadian situation next week mm. and, and, and we'll see what, what the benefits are and, and, what, and what the pitfalls are. Yeah. We'll, but, to be honest, I, I, I'm a supporter of having some constitutional recognition. The, the actual form of it needs to be better than what it is now. But um, I, I, but I would support that, even thinking that it's unlikely to have much practical effect in, in particular problems in the Aboriginal community. I think that's pretty much the way Australians view it. I think that would be the majority of Australians who view it that way, that there are, that there are not so much uh, expecting change, but you know, you know what will happen. Of course, the media will grab hold and say, oh, nothing's changed, nothing's changed, you know, or these problems continue to exist and so forth. But, but I think there is a genuine, genuine view amongst the Australian people, the majority of them, that these, these matters need to be addressed. What we're lacking at the moment is detail, as you say, but not, but not just detail, but process. Yeah, I just don't think we should be conflating the two problems. All right. Okay. Fair, fair point. Now, Paul Kelly weighed in in the Australian about the, uh, the thought resignation, the defection to the crossbenches. Now she's sitting ominously, uh, ominously near Pauline Hanson, Jack, and that, that cosily, but cosily near Pauline Hanson. Can we say <laughs> it could erupted any time? My money's on Lydia. By the way, uh, she's uh, younger, probably a little bit bigger. Uh, pound for pound, probably uh, uh, if, if matters came to a head. But look. It's an interesting question that Paul's posed here. I just don't know that there's a solution. So what he's suggesting is that if you are elected to a party, by a party, as Lydia Thorpe was, and and a number of predecessors, there's a long list of these people who have jumped on the party, on, on a party banner, got elected to the Senate, and then said, you know... You know, sometimes three months afterwards, in the case of Corey Bernardi, yeah, I don't really like this party anymore. And then they become independents or go away, as as Corey did, and start their own parties. Hmm. But how do we stop it? I don't think there's a way of stopping it that's 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 uh, that's reasonable. Paul's uh, answer was: the answer seems obvious. There should be a referendum to amend the constitution specifying that where a senator change allegiance from the party in which they are elected, they should resign from the Senate. Uh, I couldn't agree with that. I just think you, you, you elect people and, you know, there are always going to be people... It's a funny old world, you. Jack. Yeah, it's a yeah. funny old world. People in the case funny. of Lydia Green, we, we actually touched on this last week. Lydia Thorpe, I should say, ex-Green. It, it, it was obvious that the, 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 the Greens Parliamentary Party... One one member in the House of Reps, or there is it two, two, and uh, and 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 the rest of them in the Senate, uh, with the exception of Lydia Thorpe, had a particular view on the Voice, and therefore she couldn't pro- probably uh, uh, properly represent the views of her party in her own conscience while while uh, while pushing uh, uh, while pushing another uh, another view of the of the Voice and why that should be rejected. So in the end, you know, she she couldn't re- logically or, or feasibly continue to represent the Greens. Well, I, I thought it was both practical for those reasons and also principles. She's got her beliefs and, um, and the people who support that um, are entitled to have someone pushing their barrow. Well, let's just, let's just move on. Well, we'll just continue on with the Paul Kelly discussion, Jack. I mean, 
what would be the chance of a referendum like that getting up? Saying, look, which is essentially major parties will benefit from this. And I, and I think there's enough a loathing in the community about major parties. You can see this get knocked over. I mean, I, just, I suspect that's right. Mm, no, I, I, I can't see any even reason. Paul, even Paul Kelly acknowledges that it would give more power yeah, to the parties as well and, and really, you know, that wouldn't be popular, I don't think. Well, Aston is now vacant. Uh, there are some who say it's been uh, vacant of representation for a long time, Jack. Uh, <laughs> don't knock on, uh, don't knock on Mr. Tudge's uh, electoral office door. We're <laughs> expecting too much. I think was was uh, was uh, some of the views held from the good people of Aston, Jack. <laughs> and the pre-selection battle is well underway. <clears throat> Josh Frydenberg has backed Rashina Campbell for uh, Aston pre-selection. She's not a resident. Of uh, of Aston, which is uh, in east of uh, east of uh, Melbourne, uh, around Roville and Knoxfield and places like that. Does she, um, does she live a bit closer in in the east? Does she? She oh, might need the good. GPS, mate. She might need the GPS. Yeah. Roville. Ooh, I've never been there, but it sounds awful. <laughs> I think that was. I think that was pretty much Josh Frydenberg's take when he was. It, it was sort of. I don't know, I think it was offered to him in any formal way, but uh, but he had to Scott's suggestions that he might be pre-selected in Aston, and that would have been, whew, I've just had a look at it on the map, never been there, don't like the look of it. So Rashina Campbell is one who's been pushed by Josh Frydenberg, and Jack, Greg Hunt, the recently retired health minister and member for Flinders, uh, ex-member for Flinders, he has proposed um, uh, Ranjana Srivastava, an oncologist who is also a columnist for The Guardian, Jack. And uh, it would seem to be that the battle is between those two with Greg Hunt uh, backing one and uh, Josh Frydenberg backing the other. Rashina Campbell, we haven't really properly um, discussed her. She's a very competent barrister, former City of Melbourne councillor. She was swept off the... There was this, there's a transport. She had a transport responsibilities as, uh, as a Melbourne councillor and... Uh, and I think she she might have had some unkind things to say about bike trails, Jack. And, uh, and she got the flick. <laughs> she got the flick from the committee. Or, yeah. She's a commercial barrister. She can knock out a column pretty well. Um, and, and I believe yeah, she's for the uh, age. Yeah, she's married to that um, chap who looks a little, a little bit like a peanut with glasses on, uh, who goes on the inside. It's James Campbell from the. Um, Oh, is it James Campbell's wife who's the um, who's the yeah, uh, political for the, editor for the, for the at the, uh, the, the, the Herald Sun? Hmm. Yeah. Oh, hmm. I see. Well, there you go. Well, he's a, that's that's where I the Campbell name comes from. I'm told. Yeah. Well, there you go. So it'll be interesting. What they have got right, Jack, is they've got the gender bit right, haven't they? You know, we can talk about we can talk about formulas well, the and, and the ethnicity, haven't they? Really, in both cases. And and look, one of the problems in Aston, where there was a significant swing against uh, Alan Touch in the in the uh, in the federal election last year, really quite significant. A very safe seat before now, and it's sort of up for grabs. Um, you would think, and uh, possibly up for grabs. I don't think Labor has any great confidence of winning it, but um, it, the result's going to be very interesting and will be analysed ad nauseum by sophologists and journalists 
till the cows come home. But what they have got right, gotta, yes. Got to fill those column inches, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Aston by-elections, there was a very significant one many years ago um, that uh, sort of ushered in the, the, the collapse of the Labor Party. Um, uh, and I'm just trying to think what it was. Are we going back to the Whitlam days? Probably not, but... Um, but uh, it was uh, it was it was bad tidings for the for the sitting Labor government. Um, but that's not that's not on the on the on the charge at the moment. One of the problems that the Liberals also had, and when we have a look at Eastern Melbourne seats and in West seats uh, in Sydney, uh, the drop off of the Asian vote, Chinese vote, uh, in particular, was very very marked. And a lot of that's got to be sheeted home to Peter Dutton, who on Anzac Day of all days uh, said we should be preparing for war against China, which was clearly designed for domestic use and pretty bloody awful. And Chinese Australians pretty much went, yeah, I don't like the sound of that. Mm. So, yes, there's a bit of a bit of an effort to get things right there. Certainly they've got the gender right. They've got to get if – if they put forward a male, like, just, just as a speculation popped up Josh Frydenberg there, who was obviously not going to take it. But someone of that ilk, you'd think, you guys haven't learned anything. But they seem to be fairly keen around either Rashina Campbell or Ranjana Srivastava, um, who uh, – uh, have the backing of Josh Frydenberg and Greg Hunt, respectively. One to watch. Now we've got, uh, <laughs> I'd say, I'm not saying this is new. This is, this is news that um, uh, Western Australia, the state government of Western Australia is luring 30,000 British doctors, nurses, police, teachers, etc., professional types from the UK, come over to Australia, we'll, we'll assist you in your travel and, and we'll assist you when you when you set up here. Not quite, not quite 10-pound poms, but, you know. Yeah, well, 10 pounds. Have you seen the price of the pound since Boris Johnson was Prime Minister? Uh, well, um, uh, even after. But, yeah, it's not the not quite the 10-pound poms thing. My first question is, have you been to Perth lately, Jack? <laughs> have you had a wander around and listened to the uh, and listened to the accents? And there's, uh, there's, uh, you find they're either... Um, Oddly, South African. No, no, the, the people who 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 aren't uh, born and bred are, are either South African, English, or New Zealanders. Hell of a lot of New Zealanders in Perth. Yeah, I could never work out why the Wallabies played the Springboks in Perth. It was a pretty much a Springboks home game. <laughs> so that situation, although a bit not the South African one, that situation is is going to change. Police. Uh, so obviously Western Australia is saying we are very, very short uh, uh, of staff in our public health system, in our education system, and in our law enforcement in our law enforcement uh, systems. And that might and the, explain, and the, Jack. The, the bonus for the migrants is they get a state dad when they turn up in. They do. Um, uh, they do. When they, they turn up in Western Australia, you know. <laughs> they can wish uh, state dad happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day, exactly. But that, isn't that just a little bit of a sign, Jack? I'm picking up just a little bit of a sign that, that the Western Australian health system was just not up to scratch. And and this might be an acknowledgement of that uh, mm. if, uh, if COVID had a blowing out. In WA, yes. which of course it never really did, um, but you know this is the reason for the, the hard border closures and so forth. There's an acknowledgement that they they'd shut a lot of hospitals, both Labor and Liberal governments. It shut down a lot of hospitals, and um, and basically their public health system wasn't fit to, fit for purpose during a pandemic. No, 
Okay, there you go. We'll talk but the state dad will fix it. Yeah. State, yeah. state dad has fixed it, Jack. <laughs> Look, you say what you like about him, but he's the only bloke in Australian politics in history who has single-handedly dismantled the Liberal Party to the point where the Liberal Party, when they have when they have a spill and they just had one, they can have it in a phone booth. Yeah, well, we'll see. Um, let's move on to public schools, Jack, and there is this in, an extraordinary shift, a further shift towards independent schools. Uh, 15 point proportion of students in independent schools has surged to 15.1% while the share of students in state schools just across the country has fallen to record lows. Independent schools were leading the rise in enrolments for 2022 with a 3.3% increase compared with 2021. Over the past decade, enrolments in independent schools increased by over 25% compared with government school enrolments, which rose 11 and an 8% rise in Catholic schools. Now, you're... Uh, you went in the state system as a primary school, and then I think it was off to uh, a Catholic uh, boarding college after that. Right? No, no, no. It was the local Catholic primary school. Um, All right. And then uh, when we moved to Ichuka, a, um, a, a co-ed Catholic school, um, and then um, off to boarding school, year for the last, yeah, boarding school for the last three or four, I can't remember. Um, okay. Yeah. And, um, I mean, but, I, don't, I don't want to be... I don't want to be unsubtle yeah, about this, but it, 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 well, we're dealing with perception rather than reality. I mean, in, in terms of state schools, state secondary schools, are we dealing with a perception that they're not that they're, that they're inferior to independent schools? Um, um, noticeably, all the growth seems to be in the independent schools seems to be in low and mid fee Anglican, Islamic, and Christian schools in the outer suburbs of Sydney, Melbourne, etc. I see. Uh, okay, and 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 basically, well, well, we're also seeing there's been, been a bit controversy, particularly in Victoria, where you know st- uh, secondary uh, students there are paying not fees, of course, but they're paying costs, or their parents are, and that can be quite extraordinarily high, uh, up to about a thousand dollars a year if you start taking into account the price of laptops and things like that. Hmm. Um, what's you know, is this just one that we let the market market sort out, Jack? I mean, in two thousand and four, Labor and it was a disaster. Labor Labor's went to the electorate under Mark Latham. It's disastrous, uh, almost a pseudonym for and 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 um, uh, uh, and, uh, and they proposed a um, uh, a funding reduction on independent and private schools. Uh, and uh, all in the name of, of funding boost to public schools. And it was a disaster. And it was yep. a disaster because people are aspirational. They might not actually send their kids to private schools or independent schools or Catholic schools, but they would, but they would like to be able to think that they can. Yes. And that's why it was a disastrous policy. So if we ever get around to, and I actually think there are very good reasons to sort of read, to, to, to basically reform funding policy through the state, uh, through the state system and uh, through, through the states themselves and through the federal system. If we ever got around to it again, and it's very unlikely because it's one of those no-touch areas, um, uh, you know, and I think it's, it's sort of necessary in a way, um, 
the, the, the politics of it is just so awful. Mm, it is. It's very hard to touch. And historically, of course, what used to happen was that the public schools were funded by the state governments. Yes. And then the federal government came over the top and said, well, look, the, the, the independent and Catholic schools are getting no funding at all, um, so we'll start giving them some funding. Um, um, so that's the history of it, really, um, and that's where it came from. Um, so it is very messy, and it's, the, it's, it's not just the politics of it, it's the federal-state nature of, of, of it as well. Yeah, and, and, and in the meantime, of course, we've got you know some of the wealthiest um, um, private schools in the country who are, you know, um, just 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 dropped a hundred million on a new jazz club, or you know, some, some you know they're, they're offering extraordinary things. They've got three swimming pools, not one, um, and and so people are you know people who send their kids to the state system are, are well within their rights to say, hang on a minute, you know, we, we basically haven't got genuine classroom resources properly properly funded here. Um, but here's the very wealthy private schools who are, are, are getting a sling and a decent sling from the from the federal government. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's not. It's just not one of those things. It's almost like a no go area uh, for for public policy these days. It is just got skulls and crossbones written all over it. Uh, mm. <clears throat> well, successive governments have taken that view of it and tried to stay away from it as much as possible, yeah, or to touch. or to put some other body in between them and the decision making process, whether it's the Gonski Commission or whatever, whatever it was. Well, the Gonski Commission, yes, yes, yes. Don't get me started. But look, I, I did. I took a look at um, a, a state school in Melbourne, Baldwin High School, Jack. Uh, considered one of the best, consistently gets very good HSC results or VCE. It is in Victoria, uh, you know, up with up with and often beyond the the um, um, uh, the, the, the private system, the the the, uh, the Scots, the um, uh, the Scotches, I should say, the, the Melbourne Grammars, etc. And it seems to have done so from learning a little bit from these schools, Jack. They have very strong parent, uh, parent organisations that weigh in funds, and 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 uh, obviously being in ball, and they've got they've got people around there, the parents of students uh, who have probably got a few bob, uh, and and they're able to sort of boost their state funding with uh, private contributions. Mm. Is that what need, that some of these schools need to do? I mean, obviously you can't do that if you're living in a you know a, 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 a low socio socioeconomic area. But is that something the public schools should be doing, Jack? Having a look at the way the private system works and seeing what they can glean from it, see what they can get from it in terms of funding. I mean, state schools should be allowed to raise as much money as they can. Yeah, I, I, I think if you're concerned that you're losing market share. Um, uh, it, it doesn't matter what the industry is. If you're concerned you're losing market share, you look at what perhaps the, 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 your competitors are offering um, that you're not. Mm. Yeah. Um, had that conversation with my daughter uh, who is uh, heavily pregnant now with, uh, with my granddaughter and, um, and what they were going to do. And I said to them, look, don't count out the state system. Do your research. You save yourself a fair bit of money uh, week in, week out if you can avoid paying fairly high fees and and the local state school might be excellent. You just don't know. You need to do the work. And if you're, if you're in the... Vary. 
if you're in the Sydney Basin and you want your kid to go to a, a, a top course in a top university, get them into a selective high school is the answer because yeah. they do the very best. There you go. They do. Always. Always. James right, Roos Agricultural. Always at the top of always the tree. Always at the top. Always yeah. at the top. Uh, on, on the train line, uh, line to Sydney, I uh, go past that. Uh, Lee my Jack, over in the United States... Got, you wouldn't believe this, but there's a, a senator, Democratic senator from California, Diane Feinstein, who just seems to be a little befuddled, Jack. Yeah, I was going to say she announced her retirement, but she doesn't know whether she has or she hasn't. <laughs> she can't remember. <laughs> she was asked about her retirement. Uh, she's 89, by the way, and has had a, a history of acute short-term memory issues for years that sometimes raise concern among those who interact with her. Uh, on her retirement, she says, I haven't made that decision. I haven't released anything. And one of her staffers was there, said, we put out the statement. And Feinstein said, you put out the statement? I didn't know they put it out. <laughs> so there are problems there, Jack. She's in there for another two years. Um, uh, I uh, I think I think people with... And this is a short-term memory, a memory issue. It, it often does lead to dementia, and maybe the people with dementia need a bit of political representation, but it's not sensible, is it? I mean, how long can that go on for? Yeah, um, the, the best comment I saw on this was, hard to understand how she can serve for two more years, but I'm sure she's seen other cases of senators in a similar condition, although it seems at this point she would not remember. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. She would possibly be vaguely aware of it. Uh, Nikki Haley has uh, announced her candidacy. I think that actually happened uh, before we went to air last week. Jack, what chances she got? Uh, she should get about 4% of the vote and, uh, and fade out in the primaries, I would think. When's she gone? Oh. Give me a date. December, January, February? When's I she think gone? She, I think she's running for a vice presidential spot. Right, so when would she? So she would be looking at uh, being a number two. It, it seems unlikely that that would be Donald Trump, Jack. Given no, that she said no, that she I, would I, never I, run against him, I think the love is. might the love might have um, run out there. But I don't think he's going to be the candidate anyway. So, but, but I think she's putting her name forward um, in the uh, in the hope that she will be picked up as someone's uh, vice presidential running mate. Well, if you had a look at the Georgia stuff. Um, and the grand jury has has returned, and there's been a report released uh, from the the AG's department, which is um, not as comprehensive as many would have thought. And it would seem that now now there will be another grand jury established to determine where indictments take place. And specifically, there were a number of deletions from the uh, from the grand jury report. Uh, that indicated that those people who had not, who had uh, chosen not to appear before the grand jury or did not appear in front of the grand jury, uh, they are basically uh, are not making any, not making making any recommendations about that in, in because they might uh, actually uh, prohibit their right to a free trial. It seems to be indicating one person in particular, Jack, maybe a couple of others. Yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see. It is coming, and it might. I mean, what what would it do, Jack? What would it do? Donnie Trump's got the ads out, and he's got some money pumping in from donations, and then he's indicted. 
is it going to be a hindrance for him or is it going to be a, a bonus for him? Yeah, well, I've been I've been been told by people um, since uh, about four weeks after he was elected, uh, after the election, that this is going to be happening, and it hasn't happened yet. And I don't think it will. You don't think it will, but would it become a hindrance, or would it actually play into his hands a little bit? It would give him a sugar hit, at least, of support. Mm, I think so too. All right, uh, <coughs> New York Times, Jack, um, a group almost two hundred. Journalists uh, released an open letter addressed to the New York Times sharing their serious concerns about editorial bias in the newspapers reporting on transgender, non-binary and gender non-conforming people and criticising how the Times has, and I quote, followed the leader of far-right hate groups in preventing gender diversity as a new controversy warranting new punitive legislation. The open letter whose sig- uh, signees include regular contributors to The Times and prominent writers and journalists like Ed Yong, uh, Lucy Sante, Roxanne Gr- Gay, I know, Rebecca Solnit, I can't place any three. It comes at a time when far-right extremist groups and their analogues in state legislatures, there's a bit of biased reporting in itself, are ramping up their attacks on trans young people. Just yesterday, South Dakota became the sixth state to ban or restrict gender-affirming care for youth, efforts that one conservative activist recently acknowledged was merely the first step toward their goal of banning transition or care altogether. The interesting interesting thing about this is that um, for the first time for a long time, um, the Times editorial uh, team showed a bit of spine uh, and they responded... um, and they said, we do not welcome and will not tolerate petitions for participation by Times journalists in protests organised by advocacy groups or attacks on colleagues on social media and other public forums. So they said, bugger off. Um, uh, and in fact, a, a predecessor as editor-in-chief of the Times put it to his staff many years ago, you can screw, ele- screw elephants if you want to, but then you can't cover the circus. <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, always wonder what's the New York Times, what's going on there, Jack. Just before we move to Russia and Ukraine, I just wanted to. Uh, I watched some coverage of the the earthquakes in uh, Turkey and northern Syria, um, and uh, it's just an appalling situation. I know there's a Red Cross fund. There's also an MSF. That's Medicine Sans Frontieres. Um, I'd urge people to uh, donate. If they've got a little bit of uh, coin spare uh, to either organisation, uh, particularly MSF, I'm, I'm not really you know, saying one is better than the other. MSF may be better placed at this stage. They did pull a, a family out of rubble um, just the other day, and it's you know they've been buried for a couple of weeks. The death tolls now uh, in the, in the sort of uh, reaching up to about fifty thousand, and of course Syria. Well, the only ones who are providing aid in Syria, the only ones who can, and uh, and 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 uh, and that is the Russians and uh, uh, <coughs> and the Russians and to some degree the Turks. There's a backlash too, and there's a political backlash, a very significant one, Jack. Uh, that's that's really a strong anti-government staff, particularly in Turkey, um, uh, where you know building standards. Uh, have come into question because of this. You know, you had people living in places that, you know, in a in an earthquake zone, uh, that where where construction uh, 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 where con- construction um, 
um, standards were not properly set and were not properly reviewed. And there's a great deal of anger being expressed towards the Erdogan government at the moment with an election later this year. Could be a game changer for that. It it is just a horrible, horrible situation aside from the politics, and, and we just urge our, uh, our listeners to give what they can, um, just a few bucks that help uh, in people out in Syria um, and and in, and in Turkey who are in absolute desperate states. Meanwhile, uh, <clears throat> in uh, in Russia and Ukraine, Jack, at least half a million people have, have left Russia since it invaded Ukraine. This is, we, we're coming up to the. Uh, to the uh, first anniversary of the invasion this week, in fact, and half a million Russians have left and are not coming back. It's a very similar figure to what occurred before the uh, 1917 Bolshevik Revolution, Jack, and the the Soviet Union collapse in 1991. Yep. Um, uh, uh, I was reliably told that there are 30,000 in Bali alone um, uh, who are semi-permanently there and, and the same sort of things happening in Dubai and Thailand and Turkey and in all the stands. Right. So um, one of the odd things I found about this invasion is that Russians can pretty much come and go as they please. Um, despite being on the side of an invading nation, I'm not suggesting that these people are supportive of Putin, or, but but Europe is being flooded with um, uh, Russian tourists uh, holidaying in the south of France. It sounds quite odd given uh, given what's going on in Ukraine, um, and it is it is one of those things that the Finnish Prime Minister. Uh, was uh, making a very good point about uh, uh, the Finns, of course, allow uh, <coughs> Sana Marin, I should say. Uh, the Finns, of course, allow, uh, but she had reduced the number of tourist visas available to Russians coming into the country. Didn't ban, but re- restricted them somewhat. Is that something the world should be looking at, Jack? Um, well, what, what do you propose that they sort of start banning Russian tourists or something? Well, reducing the number of tourist visas available to Russians, you know, I mean, it just seems a bit obscene to me um, that uh, they can swan around in uh, swan around in the south of France uh, on large boats and what have you, while uh, their country's just pummeling pummeling uh, the cities of Ukraine. Yeah, given that half a million of them were already left, it might be a sort of a case of shutting the door after the horses bolt. Mm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, <clears throat> Uh, so you, you've been checking the maps, uh, Jack. You've been checking the maps. It, 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 it just seems to just bog down, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> not much Not much movement at all, really. So that's not to say there's not some fierce fighting. There seems to be. But oh, there's, not, it, it, there's not much. Yeah, I'm, I believe that's so, that, that, that the fighting is, is uh, very, very hot, led, in fact, by parts of the Wagner Group which I'm going to sort of set aside to talk about next week. The Wagner Group is just an appalling, appalling organisation. Its leader is just a, one of the worst human beings on earth and they are committing all sorts of outrages right now as we speak. Um, <clears throat> and um, But the American view is that Russia's already lost the war, Jack. So said the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, General Mark Marley, um, uh, in Brussels on last week, a week ago. Uh, he said Russia is now a global pariah and the world remains inspired by Ukrainian bravery and resilience. In short, Russia has lost. They have lost strategically, operationally and tactically. That seems a little bit premature to me. 
might well be premature, Jack, but I think one of the things that one of the points that he makes there, the, the, the remark about the global pariah. Now, there must be some smart people in Russia who are looking at this from a from a, an economic point of view and saying, you know, we won't be able to dig ourselves out from that global pariah view. Not for not for a couple of years. We're talking about really 10, 15 years before that stuff is going to change. And and that I think is a really significant point to make. That economically Russia is going to be basically stuffed for a very long time as a result of this. Yeah, I think that's true, um, but I don't think they've lost the war just no, yet. No, 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 I, I, I take your point there. But the global pariah, the economic pariah, I mean, they're essentially North Korea and they will remain so for a long period of time. Anyone who's trading with them, well, the people who are trading with them are Iran, China, um, India, India, to a lesser degree now, by the way, um, and, uh, you know, one or two other countries. But basically they're, you know, they're, they've... Uh, well, Putin has basically played all these cards in terms of energy control in Europe, and that hasn't really worked. So there is a sense that they've got, you know, everything horribly wrong here. Uh, oh, there's no, there's I, no doubt about that, but they still haven't lost just yet. Well, I did see that China has raised with Ukraine a, a, a peace plan, Jack. We don't know the elements of it so much, but but what we what I do understand of that the Chinese peace plan is that um, um, it acknowledges uh, sovereignty, it acknowledges the invasion, um, and uh, and it's one that I, I think the Ukrainians are looking at in in real terms. Uh, they're certainly not dismissed it, um, and presumably it has Russian approval to a point as well. I mean, it's a starting point. <clears throat> Right. A, bit to, a bit to play out there yet. Oh, yeah, quite a bit. But it's interesting that China has done the running on this. I mean, the, the United States' position on peace talks is you must return to your pre-February 21, I think it is, uh, 2022 borders, and then we can then we can talk. And I don't know that that's possible. The arrival of tanks, uh, the Abrams tanks uh, in uh, Ukraine will be a game changer, I guarantee you that. I mean, they, they will be going straight over the top of Russian trenches. Um, they, um, the, the Abrams tanks, if you compare them with the Russian the Russian tanks, Russian military vehicles or armoured vehicles, uh, faster, have greater range. I mean, they'll just be picking off Russian tanks for fun. And that's all to come in the spring, uh, in the northern spring, that is. Um, uh Look, we often joke about these things, and I don't really feel comfortable about this. Marine Yankina, who's a top Putin war official, has fallen, and I use the term advisedly, to her death. Another, another uh, uh, government official who's who, who, who suddenly who has died abruptly and without any real explanation. Uh, there, there, were, there were reports that she telephoned her husband and, and told him she was going to do this, but um, uh-huh. this is this is reports in Russia, so uh-huh. who, knows, who knows how reliable they are. Yeah, been a lot of them, Jack. Been a lot of them, and the, and these are people. Generally speaking, I can go through a list of of, of uh, a great many Russian emigres, people living in Italy. Uh, you know, they just uh, had catastrophic falls. 
uh, or indeed uh, have, have reached for shotguns. And there was one case in Italy where an oligarch had killed his family reportedly and then turned the gun on himself, which is you know just seemed so unlikely. Uh, and you know, are these signs? You know, what happens when there are no more people left for, for Putin to support? I mean, that's kind of. I mean, that's going to take a long time. But do, do, do you reckon the uh, the AMP office are pulling their salespeople out of uh, Russia? You know, we don't want we don't want you selling any more life insurance. <laughs> Look, you know, life insurance would be pretty hard, pretty hard, uh, pretty hard uh, sell for. Um, uh, for for those for those in the Kremlin, but what what it what it tells us is that that any dissenting voice, and this is he needs to listen to dissenting voices, but he's clearly close to them, and that no. that makes the prospect of a peace very very unlikely. Yeah. I think they need to be on the, they need to be smashed on the battlefield and pushed out of the Ukraine, and then we can uh, then we can start talking to them. Um. Jack, Jack, we did we did sort of push this one aside from last week. I I, I worry about it, but is God a bloke? Yeah, uh, the Anglican Church. They're worried that they are misgendering God. Misgendering is now. I think that's a that's a mortal sin. Well, yes, it might be. Um, so uh, it leads to the view: Have you always seen God as a, in human form, and therefore, and, and thus male form? I don't think I've ever. I don't think I've ever spent a moment thinking about that. Haven't you really? I mean, no. I, it's something that obsessed me. I always, I always say when people ask me about God that he actually looks like Albert Steptoe and he makes a lot of mistakes, you know. <laughs> uh, just a, a withered old man. Um, but uh, I think that's the way most of the, most of the uh, denominations will have it, uh, that uh, God is actually a male or it may be just insinuated, Jack. Yeah, it probably is, yeah. And, and and frankly, I mean, I was raised in the Catholic Church, but it it never seemed important to me, much one way or the other. Uh, okay. Um, yeah. Uh, we'll move on to energy now. I, I'm not sure about the, the gender of God is all that important, but it seems to be well, worrying the, the Anglicans. The, the Anglicans have got to have something to worry about. Well, um, they, this they, this they is the Anglicans. <laughs> This is Do the they English. believe in God, the Anglicans? Well, I think it's very optional in England. The English <laughs> Anglicans, you know, believing in God's, you know, there's some wonderful scenes in um, Yes, Prime Minister where they're appointing a bishop. Yes, uh, yes. And they're going through the various gradations of what he believes in. Um, and almost none of the candidates believe in God, I think. Uh, yeah, the but, resurrection, all sorts of things were, were baffling to them. Um, yeah. But, uh, but, but, of, but, of course, the very large Anglican community in, in the third world, Particularly in Africa, they do believe in God, and they they almost certainly think God's a man. Maybe that's yeah. I'm, I'm sure that is absolutely true. So I was talking to a mate of mine who is an Anglican and pops off to the uh, the church on a regular basis in London, and um, and I had that sort of conversation about faith with him, and really it was like, well, well, yeah, look, I probably do believe God exists, but I'm really just there for the you know for the social side of it. And that's mm. why well, Anglican churches are in England, very, very, very substantially. Except for the black ones. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Um, um, and we'll move on to energy now. Um, uh, what have we got here? Pakistan to quadruple domestic coal-fired capacity to reduce power generation costs. No new gas-fired uh, plants 
planned in Pakistan. And there's a surge in liquefied natural gas prices after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. LNG unaffordable for Pakistan, so they've gone to coal jack. They have, as have the Bangladeshis. Bangladesh will also increase coal generation of electricity to to, to protect uh, energy supply suffers uh, frequent energy blackouts in Bangladesh, which it plans to fix with an extra 4.3 gigawatts of coal power. Hope they're buying Australian, Jack. Bangladesh imports large amounts of coal-generated electricity from India. They're buying the electricity, not the coal, uh, and plans to triple those imports, which is... I mean, the Indians, their own policies on energy are quite quite interesting. And this is, meanwhile, India requests utilities not to retire coal-fired power plants till 2030, just two years after committing to phase down use of coal. The plan did not involve actually shutting down any of its 179 coal power plants and set no formal timeline for phasing down coal use. Um, Meanwhile, in South Africa, um, last calendar year, they had 200 days of power cuts. I know, it's a shocker, isn't it? Uh, um, they just really haven't planned for the future at all. We, we reckon we've got energy policy wrong with that. It is catastrophic in South it, Africa. It's all run by a company called ESCOM, a government-owned um, uh, power company. And, and I'm, told, I'm, I'm told by people who spend a lot of time in South Africa um, that it's largely a result of government corruption. Yeah. Um, and uh, and at the moment they're they're happily selling coal um, uh, elsewhere because it's it's coming at a better price than ESCOM will pay for. No, India were actually toying with the idea of using their own coal and and uh, and restricting uh, imports of coal from other parts of the world. Now I don't think that's gone ahead yet. Um, but it was one of those things that was mentioned around the Adani mine, which seems to be. Uh, for other reasons and questions of corruption within the Adani Corporation uh, now seem not unlikely to proceed but seems to have put another twist on the Adani coal mine uh, problem. Uh, meanwhile, Oliver Stone, <laughs> Jesus Christ, Oliver Stone, let me just take a moment to think about Oliver Stone. He says the environmental movement's stance on nuclear power is wrong and derail the sector's development, according to filmmaker. He's become be, become a real conspiracist, Oliver Stone. But I think his his highest moment was um, was um, uh, was the filming of Alexander the uh, Alexander the Great. I think it was just called Alexander, uh, and the lead Alexander, a good Irish boy, uh, <clears throat> who I watched uh, last night, uh, Colin Farrell, uh, Colin Farrell. <laughs> He said, "What what accent should I give him?" He goes, "Just got use the one you got." So 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 Alexander in the movie is going, "Oh, Fate and it's the feckin' Persians," which is really really funny and just a disaster of a film, of course. And Colin Farrell still 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 laughs about it, which is great. I think you know you've got to be able to laugh. Oliver Stone hasn't probably made a decent film in a long time, and he's become very very strange. However. Here's your your spokesman of the week. For uh... well, I, I was rather tickled by this because this is the first time I can ever recall uh, me even slightly agreeing with Oliver Stone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, this is what he said: We had the solution, nuclear power, and the environmental movement. To be honest, just derailed it. I think the environmental movement did a lot of good. A lot of good. I'm not knocking it. 
But in this one major matter, it was wrong. It was wrong. And what they did was so destructive because by now we would have had 10,000 nuclear reactors. He is is prone to a bit of exaggeration there, Oliver. 10,000 nuclear reactors built around the world and we would have set the example like France set for us. But no one followed France or Sweden for that matter. So there you go. Make your own minds up about Oliver Stone and and, uh, and if you believe him on that, go and have a look at his theories on the Kennedy assassination because they're even crazier. Um, uh, electric vehicles, Jack, another uh, another one of your uh, your pet uh, 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 pet supports. You love the EVs and you'll buy one one day. Uh, a report by the Climate and Community Project at Climate policy think tank with researchers from uh, UC Davis suggests that the United States can achieve zero emissions transportation-wise while limiting the amount of lithium mining necessary by reducing the car dependence of the transportation system, decreasing the size of electric vehicle batteries and maximising lithium recycling. That's very good news, isn't it, Jack? Oh, it is. Um, I was just taken, rather taken by this bit, um, the report says that reordering the U.S. transportation system through policy and spending shifts to prioritise public and active transit while reducing car dependency. I think active transit means walking. Uh, well, I think it means a bit of public transit too, doesn't it? I mean, it no, no, means... no, 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 it's public and active. I think the public, oh, public transit... and active. Oh, yeah, yes, the, I see. The, the, the public bit's catching the bus. Well, what's the passive bits... transit? What's passive transit? Is that when someone picks you up and walks you, walks, <laughs> walks you around? Is that passive transit? I don't know. Yes, this. Uh, where do we get this from? This is from GreenCarCongress.com, I think. Uh, or oh, no, Bloomberg. God, gee whiz. No wonder, no wonder AI start replacing journalists as if this was written by a journalist who needs a good slap. But here's the thing, Jack. US consumers are embracing electric vehicles with more than a half of the nation's car sales predicted to be electric by 2030. For listeners who don't know, uh, we have a bet on this, uh, and, and I think the date is twenty thirty. Oh, I think it is actually yes. Uh, and the percentage of uh, percentage of uptake, and I can't remember what we did there, but uh, I'm looking forward to a very long lunch at your expense, Jack. Uh, EVs going ahead. The, there's a problem, you know. Basically, people who are ordering EVs are not getting them immediately. They're having to order them because of the unavailability of batteries, particularly lithium, particular lithium shortage, not helped by the uh, by COVID uh, supply uh, chains being cut down. The good news is, of course, that Australia has got a ton of lithium and uh, and uh, we're uh, starting to rip it out of the ground right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so let's... But, but uh, just, just, think, just think how fit you're going to be to have that lunch and all the active transit <laughs> you will have been doing. <laughs> oh, that's, uh, right. that's right. I'll actively <laughs> transit myself to there, but I don't know about actively transi- transiting myself away from the lunch. I may need to be, uh, may need to be, uh, be carried from that one. Um, well, there's also a lovely little graph here. This is from greencarcongress.com. And what's that telling us, Jack? Oh, I, I, I've lost the graph. I can't, I can't see where it's gone. Well, uh, you better, we, you better we, explain it to me. All right. So lithium demand for US light uh, duty vehicles. So we're talking about sedans and vans and things like that. Yeah. Uh, 71, a 71% uh, reduction via reduced personal vehicle ownership. 
large battery best case for reducing vehicle ownership, small battery best case. And so we're getting to the point where small battery best case for reducing vehicle ownership recycling. So so there are there are four various graphs here. And we do know, and we've talked about this, that, and, and the automotive industry is well aware of this, that, you know, that there will come a time, and particularly in places like Hong Kong, where parking uh, where parking is very difficult, very expensive, that people will basically subscribe to a car and uh, they'll pick it up like an Uber, but it'll be theirs uh, and it'll be shared with other people. Um, made available almost like a fleet, uh, a fleet available to you. So in the end, you'll have 10, uh, 10 people owning four cars rather than 10 people owning 10. Uh, and that, and that's, that's the big shift in, in, um, in, in, in automotive. It's particularly bleak prospects for, uh, for, uh, all the major motor vehicle manufacturers around, uh, around the, um, around the world. When we look at the big uptake of United States EVs, Jack, a lot of them now are in that big, um, well, we, we call them big utes now, um, Hiluxes and what have you. Um, that's where a lot of the, the shift in behaviour has come in EVs in the States. And they're not small battery <laughs> items, mate. You need, need some pulling power to get those going. Yeah. All right, yeah. Sri Lanka. Oh, 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 personally, I haven't had a car for... Ooh, I think I've had a car all the time. I've been in Hong Kong for about um, uh, two weeks, I think, in 14 years, 14 or 15 years. Boy, you, you wouldn't want to drive your own car there, would you? I mean, I uh, just the, saw some video of a mate who was on his way to the yacht club <laughs> and he was in fear of his life in the cab there. Mm, and it looks the, like the, the, the red and white Toyota Crown Comfort's excellent, you know. <laughs> all right. Uh, yeah, just cabs. I think if you if you live in a big city and you just just worked off cabs, Uber slash Ubers, uh, hired a car when you when you when you needed one for a weekend or something like that, and uh, well, that, that, I did that in Melbourne for a, for a few years, living in um, uh, North Carlton, um, trying to work. If you do um, this, uh, yeah, if you do the uh, sums at the end of the year, yeah. as opposed to leasing a vehicle, maintaining it, keeping on the keeping on the road with uh, insurance and what have you. And about, about three or four long way week, ahead, not having one. Yeah, three or four w- w- weekends a year, you go and see Bob Anson at budget and pick up a car. Yeah, yeah about, about 40, 50 bucks a day. Yeah. Still, you know. Um, meanwhile, in Sri Lanka, the International Monetary Fund is considering approving a loan for Sri Lanka, even without China's assurance of debt restructuring support. Bloomberg News reported on Friday. Under a rarely used policy, the global lender may consider approving the island nation's loan as the only prerequisite hindering the go-ahead is China's formal assistance. That's a, that, that seems a bit strange. I mean, I think that Chinese debt uh, in the total um, owed by Sri, by Sri Lanka, the total public debt owed, owed by Sri Lanka, I think is about 15%, isn't it, Jack? It is. It's a, it's a reasonably chunky number, um, uh, but uh, I think the, the IMF are determined to get the loans to Sri Lanka come what may. Yeah. Get it in um, and uh, get it doing some good. I mean, we've been reporting on Sri Lanka going back over a year now and just uh, the economic calamity that has come their way, a disaster of government policy. Um Initially, you know, sort of selling it at least in, in, on the basis that they were growing, going organic, 
which is lovely if you run a farmer's market or if you've got a store at a farmer's market. But if you're running a national agricultural-based economy, it's an absolute disaster. Uh, <coughs> and um, and uh, their problems stem from those. It was uh, Sri Lanka was already had a very heavy debt burden around uh, uh, around state debt and public debt. Um, it's a real tragedy what's happened there. Um, uh, anyway, there's a bit of development going on there, Jack. Um, new, new port in Colombo, and yeah, it's called Port building City. It. It's a port city. The Chinese are build, building it, um, and it's a uh, it's on the edge of the city. Um, uh, it's on reclaimed land, um, and um, it's got everything there, including an artificial beach. Artificial beach in a commercial zone. Oh, I guess, I guess, I see what you mean. It's, it's not heavy, not heavy industry so much. No, no. But the one thing Sri Lanka's not short of is good beaches. So you sort of wonder why that. Put one it right seems it. odd. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, yeah. That was uh, that was a report from Al Jazeera. Um, uh, it seems odd that, uh, that 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 would be that would be something that would be sought after by the Sri Lankans. And probably the last thing they need. I mean, it's good. Foreign investment's good because it'll be work and, and money. Yep. But, but uh, beyond that, I'm not quite sure. Disinfo and misinfo, Jack, what do you say about it? Here's Glenn, Glenn Greenwell. Where do I know him from, Jack? What sort of loudmouth clown is he on Who's Twitter? Uh, when he's talking about. When he's talking about. Um, uh, uh, disinfo. Oh, he's an American journalist, that's right. Oh, look, he, he actually has gone off the deep end, mate. <laughs> he really has gone off the deep end, another one who has. And what's he saying? Anyone who claims to be a disinformation expert, an anti-extremist expert, an online security or safety expert is a fraud. That's what he said on Twitter. These are fake expertises that do not exist, that are inherently politicised and subjective and that are designed to disguise ideology as science. I'll give you a bit of a rundown on, on Greenwald, mate. He's, he's made some pretty ordinary choices in uh, in uh, in just over a little while. He was a, a bit of a um, a bit of a uh, uh, in a, in a, almost another lifetime. He was uh, he was uh, a bit of a hero amongst the journalistic class, but uh, he's dropped off significantly since. Look, Jack, what do we do about disinformation? You know what, what? What's to be done about it? And and your problem is, I guess, and you've said this before. What is it? Who 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 decides what it is? Yeah, that, that's that, that's my problem with it. Who gets to decide what's misinformation? Yeah. Well, let me give you a couple of examples. So um, there's a there's a thing called died suddenly, and it, and it, and it basically keys into a, a documentary. Well, a, a fake documentary, and I'm happy to call it that. Um, <clears throat> called uh, of the same name, and now it's it's a it's a hashtag that's kind of all over the social media, not just Twitter but elsewhere. And uh, and it will anyone who dies suddenly will go up there. So we saw the example of a Belgian goalkeeper in the sort of second division of their competition who saved the ball and then hit the ground. And uh, and died of a, uh, a, a a cardiac episode, and people were immediately jumping on this without a cause of without a known cause of death, and saying that he he had had sustained his injury because he'd been vaccinated. Now that's disinformation, and it's easily spread 
and it takes a, a great deal more to 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 actually um, uh, to actually debunk it. it. Takes a great deal more energy to actually debunk it than it does to circulate this information that he died of a of a COVID vaccine. It's actually premature information. No one really knows when, when they when they spread this. Yeah, well, that's yeah, that's it. But except to say that. FIFA was very, very concerned about sudden deaths on the soccer pitch going back a number of decades and established a register, um, <coughs> established a register that was subject to a study between the years 2014 and 2018. And uh, we find that uh, there were 617 deaths across FIFA competitions, soccer players, male, female, uh, various ages, various uh, standards, including the elite level. And uh, it's unsurprising, Jack, that uh, that people do die on sporting fields. It 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 just it just does happen. It's it's actually the syndrome is called sudden death, um, but it is sudden. Uh, <coughs> um, it is sudden cardiac arrest. Is the is the thing driving behind? And the, and the research was published in the British Medical Journal. So they've got a lot. Your, your home state of New South Wales lost an Attorney General. Um, uh, many years ago, um, uh, playing um, uh, a bit of social tennis. Yeah, look, it, it does it does happen, and it's really not vaccine related. It might have some COVID relationship. Um, there is some, but not by no means comprehensive research coming forward that saying people who suffer their second and third infections of COVID are more likely to have potential heart problems. Other research indicates that's not quite right, so we don't want to be making any comprehensive statement. I just remember Jack going in, and this is we'll push COVID to one side. I remember going to the doctor and taking tipping the scales at 121 kilos, uh, and happily I've lost about 10 or 11 of those. Um, but I said to the doctor, well, I shall just, just start walking. He goes, oh, God, no. <laughs> God, no. Don't you just start walking? You know, and, and, I, and I went off to... Um, to a cardiologist for a stress test. And that's kind of the key. Uh, that's the key thing. It's a simple test that you can do. It's Medicareable for those for those in Australia and for of a particular age, but you but even in your twenties, if you just start thinking, oh, I'll just go and do some some pretty pretty hard form of exercise that's that my body hasn't expected or experienced for some time, if at all. You know, you, you go into a high-risk category over cardiac arrest. Um, so the, the answer is talk to your GP. And if your GP says go and get a stress test before you undertake strenuous exercise or, in my case, even light exercise, and off you go and you have your stress test, you get on the treadmill and they put the things all over you and they're looking for blockages in hearts, Jack. Yeah. And um, and that's a good way to overcome it. Um Anyway, that's that's information, so, not in disinformation. So you hop you hop on the talking scales, and the and the voice said, oh, "Come on, come on, one at a time." Thank <laughs> hey, you. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> um, yes, I was, I was actually <laughs> I was sort of eclipsed with shame. I'd never been 120 before, but there I was, uh, and you know, I, just, I had to look at them again. Is that, is, is that right? Is that accurate? And I was, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I, I don't look like I've walked past the pie stall without stopping too often either myself. So. <laughs> well, I, 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 I got the, I got the old um, type two diabetes lecture as well. It was my bloods were ominously close there, and uh, so yeah, just 
cut back on a bit of sugar, but did the stress test. And that might be something for a lot of other listeners to, uh, if particularly if you think, well, maybe I should just start walking half an hour every day because I haven't done that for a long time. Um, yeah. Perhaps have a chat to your GP before you do it. Mm. Um, yeah, don't worry, don't, don't worry, mate. I, I'm keeping a cardiologist in, in Mercedes. Mercedes up here. Put his kids through schools. Yeah. Put his kids through some very expensive schools. Um, look, there are good bodies around this, and, we, and we, we actually the conditional release program did a did a uh, podcast on the mainstream media and and uh, and I suppose the sort of anti-vax um, um, and, and you know and the sort of freedom movement. And one of the things that we have seen arise, Jack, is is um, um, facts check. Fact checks and, and Reuters have theirs, and uh, there's a number of companies that have them. The ABC undertook a, a program at, at RMIT. I think these things are absolutely necessary. I know you're saying, "Oh, what's this information?" But if someone is actually saying, that's that's where the intervention's got to occur. If someone's actually saying the COVID vaccine has led to a higher instance of of um, has led to a markedly higher instance of, of death by cardiac uh, arrest, then you need to you need to basically have that uh, have that not debunked but properly analysed and uh, and I think those are good things that fact check companies do. Oh, I think that I've got little faith in the fact check companies. Um, they're notorious for putting their thumb on the scale um, uh, and 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 pushing their debate the way they want it to go. I don't find that with well, Reuters I use quite a bit, and I don't find that at all. Uh, I don't find that at all. Um, I find that what they say is absolutely right, um, gen- generally speaking. You know, I, I spoke with a woman last uh, last week, um, uh, Los Angeles, lovely lady, um, lost her son uh, in a car accident. He was 24 years of age. Her younger son was 24 years of age. She's dealt with the grief. She's... she's uh, She's published a book about that whole experience of grief. In fact, she wrote a piece for the Huff Post about that grief, and the headline of that piece that she wrote for Huff Post included the phrase "died suddenly," and then her son's death and the grief all around it was appropriated by this documentary "Died Suddenly," and there she there, there, there she became, and she didn't watch the the documentary or she did once it was brought to her attention, but they'd appropriated the, the death of her son who died in 2017 by the way, pre-pandemic and was not vaccinated for COVID obviously uh, and uh, her, her, the death of her son had been appropriated by or by the headline announcement had been appropriated by a mob who wanted to spread disinformation so it's pretty ugly stuff mate well, I agree that I agree that there is, but the solution is not not the fact checkers. Because I say my view is that they put their, their their thumb on the scale. Well, they might put their thumb on the scale, Jack. But but in the absence of that, in the absence of journalism that, that goes around and say, well, you know, what's this woman supposed to do? Present present her son's death certificate. I mean, what's she supposed to do? I mean, it is ghoulish beyond belief that 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 her death that the son that her son's death would be appropriated. Um, or misappropriated by the makers of a so-called documentary to prove a point about vaccine injury. Yeah, I agree that she's got a problem, but I don't think there's a solution to the problem. Um, certainly the solution is not to have somebody that decides what's misinformation. 
All right, very quickly now, Jack, uh, the UK, we we are going to push this back to next week as well. The discussion on lockdowns, we've had them before. Um, uh, some are saying that uh, the UK is, is emerging from lockdowns harder than uh, the rest of Europe, let's say. Um, I don't think we can take... Uh, I don't think we can take Brexit out of the equation, but let's push that back to next week, Jack, because we are yep. running out of time and we want to get to the fact that Nicola Sturgeon has resigned as the First Minister for Scotland. Uh, a dominant figure in politics in Scotland to the, extent, a long that, time. To mm. the extent that um, uh, I couldn't tell you who the opposition leader is or who deputy, uh, deputy's John Winnie. That's about all I know. So she's dominated uh, yeah. Scottish politics for a long time. Um, Scotland, though, is not going well. They've got a life expectancy problem, a drug deaths problem, yes. and a uh, and a schooling and healthcare problem. They do indeed. And um, uh, it's one, one of, of those issues. Places, one of the few places in the Western world where life expectancy is going down, not up. Wow. Okay. So um, the answer to that is not... Scottish independence. I mean, the, 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 the resignation of, um, of Sturgeon is pretty much put that to bed for the foreseeable future too, hasn't it? Yep, it has. All right. Um, uh, <clears throat> I just want to move on. We're going to take it through the sport because, Jack, I watched two days of play um, uh, over the weekend. I got Australia had a terrific Saturday. That was the second day's play. I watched the Friday night a fair bit of it. Um, I thought they'd had a terrific day. Um, uh, Nathan Lyon had chipped in with some early wickets. I think he had four for four for seven at one point. Uh, and then Travis Head um, batting. I think they had thirteen overs to face. He came out and bowled it up a quick forty. And they were looking very good. They were leading by sixty. They probably let uh, India back in with a, 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 a sort of lower order. Um, Axar and and um, uh, and the offie had, had basically put themselves together for hundred and ten plus for the yeah, eight hundred seventeen I think it was it was a great mm. partnership and Axar can really bat so let's not just say he was you know a mug who got lucky he, he's a good player and then yesterday he's, mate he's, wow he, it was hard to watch he's not Jimmy Anderson or Glenn McGrath he can actually play yeah we'll talk about Jimmy in a little while but. Um, um, uh, yeah, he, he, he's a good player. He's probably a good. He'd be a number number seven in most sides. Um, and he's batting an eight or nine. Um, uh, it was just terrible, Jack. I mean, the, 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 there seemed to be a view that if you play across the line, blacks was basically swing wildly, sweep wildly, playing across the line of a ball and on deteriorating pitch. That was a good idea. I mean, six six blacks out sweeping. Uh, one reverse sweeping, the keeper, um, and the shot that was played by the skipper, my Lord, wow, first ball. And uh, I don't think I've ever played a, played a shot like that first ball in any cricket since, I, you know, and, and, and I'm going all the way back to when I was nine. And it was just terrible. It was so poor from Cummins. He didn't bowl in the, uh, in the Indian second innings. Uh, the real question's now rising about his captaincy. Mm. A lot of yeah. critics about his field placements, and they and and really there were no there's no one around the bat. No, they had a short leg for Lyon and Murphy, 
Um, they should have had blokes around the bat, particularly for Kuhneman as well. Should have had blokes in, around the bat on the offside. It, it, particularly if, if you're trying to win the test match, that is. Well, what's the, what's the point about having three or four in the boundary? You're only protecting 113, and it's not going to work. Mm. Um, uh, and, of course, it didn't. But, um, look, I think they picked up four, didn't they? Four wickets. And, and uh, look, Murphy got Coley out with an absolute blinder, which was great. I mean, there, there, are no, there are some positives, but the batting is just awful. And they just there's nothing to be done from a selection point of view. Really, not very much. I mean, there'd be a bit of tinkering. Does Dave Warner play in the third test? Um, uh, does uh, does uh, Renshaw play again? Those sorts of things will be sorted out. But in the end, it's not. There aren't. They, they can't make sweeping changes. They just need to change their approach to batting, yeah. and that's play straight. Yeah. Play yeah. straight. Yeah. <laughs> you remember? Remember when you first grabbed the bat and what your coach told you? Put your oh, front foot. Even, even, put even, your front foot towards the ball and play straight. Even before, you, even before you got a coach, it was your father and your uncles who were telling you that. <laughs> Look, it, it, they, they, and, and then when um, then when India got into bat, they just actually showed how it was done. Um, playing against good quality spin bowling, uh, Murphy, Kuhneman, line, and they were on the front foot. They were used. They're using their feet on the front foot, working working the ball you know, straight and through mid-wicket and through cover and then cutting, you know, cutting with a ball was short. Sweeping, yeah. for God's sake, just put it away. If you can't sweep, don't. You know, I mean, it's just simple as that. Anyway, don't get me started. Uh, it was a terrible the, performance. That's a lesson for, for, for Steve Smith. If you can't sweep, don't. Um, this is, this is a, a well-needed reality check for the Australian cricket public and the team. Um, yes. Who have been, They're not the um, side we thought they were. They're not the side. Um, I like these comments from what I think is the world's best cricket writer, Mark Atherton. Yes, he, um, uh, he was responding to uh, Steve Smith and Pat Cummings saying that winning in India was bigger than winning the Ashes um, uh, in England. Uh, and uh, Mike Atherton's comment was, well, how would they know? Um, there's, not, there's not a current um, Australian player who's – um, won an Ashes series in England, uh, and there hasn't, and none of them won. A, none of them won a, um, a Border Gavaskar a series in India either, mm. um, and, and that's actually true. And it's a hard lesson to learn. Um, he says the moving ball is like kryptonite to Australian batsmen, reared on hard pitches where they can play early and hit through the line of the ball with freedom, and they struggle when it starts to get off the straight. And I think that's true as well. Yeah, but and and it is true. There's no doubt about that. The stats read that, but but at the same time, you need to if you, if you're going to go in there and go sweet crazy on a on, on a wicket that's keeping low. I mean, you just if you miss, you're out, you know. And because they're going to be bowling on the stumps, and if you miss, you're out. It's as simple as that. And you're going to, and, and the best sweepers in the world will miss. Mm. So really, a, a very strange approach. Meanwhile, and I watched a bit of this over the weekend too, a fantastic test in um, uh, in, in New Zealand, uh, second test over there, um, um, and uh, and seven hundred runs and twenty one wickets uh, in the in the first two days. Two in two days. This is what we call baseball after Brendan McCullum. Uh, eight England players made twenty five plus in the second dig. Tail wagged. That was that was you know it's probably the story of India too. India's success. Tail wagged for England. They set New Zealand a target. 
that I thought even at three fifty was gettable. Um, but especially it got when you had that. two, especially when you had two days to get it. Yeah, plenty of time. That's right. Uh, and and uh, basically the old the old team, um, Stuart Broad and and uh, and his mate, Jimmy Anderson, Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy uh, knocked them over, didn't they? They knocked them over for about 100, I think. Uh, they yeah. were nine for 95 when I st- stopped paying attention. And just to put this in context with the Nashes series coming up um, after the Australian debacle uh, in Delhi, um, that is 10 wins out of 11 test matches since um, England changed its coach and its captain. Well, we need to have a look at where this is going to lead. If Australia get blotted in India for zip, um, will that mean that they still qualify for the World Test Championship, Jack? I think they probably I th- do. I think they do. India are almost certain to go to the um, yeah, World Test Yeah, it'll be Australia or India, almost certainly, yeah. but they may not be the best side in it on form. Um, what's happening with the Hawthorne Inquiry, Jack? We got anything there? Nothing? No, I was just wondering. We, 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 that seems nothing. to have fallen off, it's the, just fallen nothing. off the cliff, doesn't it? It, it? It's just not getting any attention. Um, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it, but there's really no reporting going on at the moment. Uh, one of the Collingwood boys uh, got done for uh, recreational drug use um, and uh, has received a four-match suspension, the small four, the cheeky little bugger. Jack um, Kinnivan. Um, uh, two matches, two, two of the matches he suspended for are the pre... Uh, one against uh, Carlton, practice match, yep. Yeah, uh, the pragging matches. But um, yeah, I, look, I've, I've always been troubled with the idea of um, testing sports person for sports people for recreational drugs. Yeah. Um, uh, they do have the, a very strange policy in the AFL where the first one... I think it's strike two before the club actually gets informed. You know, you can actually be caught twice in this strange way and the club may be none the wiser. Anyway, he was spotted. He was shot. I think he was shot on video, I think, mm. in a pub. He was, he, he, he was tidying up the um, uh, the basin. Uh, the, 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 just tidying up the toilet facilities, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Touring them up. Uh, Jack, uh, take us out, uh this is a vexed subject for us. We were talking about Diane Feinstein before. Don Lemon says that women are in their prime 20s, 30s, 40s. Is he saying intellectually or what's he saying uh, there? Don Lemon, as I think Lemon. he Lemon. He's not a lemon. I, I always thought he was not a lemon, but um, no. he's, he's, he's just hanging on by his fingernails at CNN. Um, um, uh, he... Uh, he looked like he was following Chris Cuomo out the door, but they shifted him to the breakfast program instead. And he's sitting there with his two co-hosts, both women uh, look to be in their probably their 30s, and he just come out and said, it says, look, uh, he's probably with Nikki Haley declaring as um, as a presidential candidate is that she's, Too old. She's, nearly, she's nearly 50. He says, <laughs> because if you, if you look this up on Google... Um, women were in their prime in their 20s, 30s and 40s. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. This, is, this is sort of a career ender. Um, yeah. It's, it, I it think they uh, won't have long fingernails if he's hanging on by those, mate, because yeah. that's, that's just about out the door, isn't it? Yeah, and the best comment I, I got from it was from um, uh, another uh, television person who says, well, that means, according to American law, that if you're a woman who wants to be a presidential candidate, you have a 15-year um, 
um, a, a spot there because you, you can't do it till you're 35, you know. Otherwise, you, you, you die in fine state. Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, Jesus Christ. I mean, uh, look, even we'd, even we'd uh, balk at something as crazy as that, Jack. Um, yeah, we don't <laughs> mind being inflammatory, but that's touching the third row. That is really, <laughs> that is really just something that I'm sure he's full of regret. Um, or maybe he's just, uh, maybe he's just, uh, Getting his getting his name out there before he gets sacked for for a new job mm. somewhere else in media. Mm. All right, thank you. We've uh, we've gone very very long today, and we have cut a few things out. And we've got a few things that we want to talk about next week, including lockdowns <coughs> and including some matters about energy policy as well. Um, so uh, we will uh, uh, send those off uh, to uh, general business next week. And in the meantime, uh, we want to thank you for listening and thank you, Jack, for your attendance today and walking us through the, the uh, events of the world. Cheers, mate. And uh, thank you once again, listeners, and we'll be back with you next week. Cheers. Bye.